You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 142, and it's the first Friday of the month, Mark. So what does that mean? It means it's the first Friday Q&A, and we did it relatively on time this time. <laughs> so you guys write in. We answer the questions. We have a little crystal ball that sees all things oil and gas. <laughs> we were joking about it on the mic. It's like some of y'all out there think we really do have a crystal ball because we don't. <laughs> but before we get in that, if you like the show, do me a favor. Leave a review. We have a great review here. Literally, it says, great. I've been listening to this podcast for quite a while now, and I have to say that Jake and Mark do a great job covering the big news in the industry. I very much appreciate the podcast. Keep up the great work. And that's from Tom9393420 from the US of A. Thank you, Tom. If you want to be like Tom, leave us a review. We'll give you a big shout out, just like we gave him. All right, Jake, first Friday Q&A, let's get into questions. All right. First question is from Jason, CFO at Sierra Pine Resources International. He writes, what is your take on the recent success of the Utah lease sale? And then I'll go, set up, I'll go ahead and say a second question too. Are the operators interested in this field taking a gamble in hopes of hitting large undiscovered reserves? Or is this a legitimate play in a field that was previously inaccessible? Love the show, Jason. I don't know if we should be answering investment questions to a CFO. Somehow it seems like it's a conflict of <laughs> potential interest or something. So the whole thing is, Jason, don't use what we have to say for investment advice. What I think the success Utah lease sale, I think it's a natural progression, right? So they had what fifty one, fifty two thousand acres that was that was auctioned off. This is all part of our current administration opening up lands. You know, that's it's really close to a uh, national monument. I can't remember what it's called, but there is a lot of hydrocarbons there, and and that area. Utah is not one of the most economically viable states in the U.S., and that part of Utah is really, honestly, one of its poorest counties. So you're talking about bringing jobs, and not just any jobs, but good, high-paying jobs to an area of the state that could really use the revenue, that could really use the money, right? And so – you know, you have the typical environmental people out there saying that, you know, most of these have some type of threatened species and they're not going to sit idly by. Stop it. Right. This is, you know, BLM's leasing this land out. We can do this economically. We can do it environmentally friendly. In fact, we can walk away from that land after we go finish production and leave it in a better shape than before we got there. And in the process, we're going to create jobs for the people that live in that part of the state. So, so Jason, I think this is a, a natural progression, right? So as we as we tap out the other shell basins and as I say tap out, as operators snatch up prime maker to other sales basins, as an operator, you start looking to see if you take a chance and go into another basin and, and going out here in the whole Utah area. It's not really that much a chance. Those those reservoirs are proven. They're there. It's just we got to do some work, like build some infrastructure to help drive the cost down. So hopefully that answers your question. And then what was the second part, Jake? Is this a legitimate play in a field? Yes, this is a legitimate play in a field that was, now you say previously inaccessible. It was, it was physically accessible. It was financially inaccessible when you looked at some of the other shell basins. But as we go through time, you'll see more and more and more of this of basins that basically dried up in the 80s. They didn't dry up, but the operators walked away. You can see the operators go back and revisit them because with our new technologies, we can get a lot of the oil off the ground. And then Jake, I had lunch end of last week with, I'm not going to mention the name of the company, but they were talking to me about this new technology that will allow us to get about another 20 or 25% of the oil out of the ground in all these shell plays. Well, right now we're only able to get 15% at the most. Most operators get 10 or 12. So you're talking about some new technology. It's right around the corner that could make these basins that are marginal, super productive. So good question, Jason. Glad to love the show. Thanks for writing in. 
Cool. Up next is a question from Tom Jewett. He's a graduate student from University of Idaho. He writes, thanks for hosting such a great show and helping young geologists such as myself hear about other aspects of the industry I've not yet been exposed to. My question is, with China constructing these artificial islands in the South China Sea and attempting to take control of more maritime land, do you think this is partly motivated by prospective oil and gas prospects in the South China Sea? And how do you think this will affect exploration efforts in the area? Thank you. So, Damn good job, Tom. That's what I've said forever, that these these islands where the, the China is building man-made bases so they can claim ownership is very much an energy play. China, even though th- their demand for energy has slowed down, the demand still grows year over year, they need more cheap, reliable energy. And there's, and I'm going to get this wrong, somebody correct me, but in that sea, that deep part of the, the South China Sea, there's this thing, I think it's called crystal methate, but it's basically hydrocarbons that lay on the ocean floor in crystal form. And a Japanese company has figured out a way to commercially harvest that in a way that makes financial sense. So now you have all these hydrocarbons that literally you don't have to drill for. <laughs> that's just sitting there that you can pick up. Will China start doing that next week? No way. It's just it's not there yet. Are they looking at it in the future and also looking at what other type of hydrocarbon reserves are there? I say absolutely. Now, what's interesting, Jake, and you and I haven't talked about this, for the first time since World War II, the Japanese have activated their version of the Marine Corps. Really? So these guys are locked and loaded now, right? And if you ever served in the military, most of the time you're not armed. <laughs> you're you're always not armed. It's it's only when you get activated and certain things happen where you're allowed to actually it's the next step in being ready. And so since the first time I just read this this morning, since the first time since World War II, Japan has activated their version of of the Marines for this exact reason. They're actually looking to the U.S. to bring them some more assets, more amphibious assets, because they're worried about having to actually literally go to these islands and stand down the Chinese. Lord, I hope we don't go there because we don't want Japan and China. That, that's some old bad blood there. And and hopefully it's just it's a little bit of a show of force. But yeah, and, and you know, China's overstepping its bounds. And and unfortunately, no other country that I know of except for maybe the U.S. Will, will walk in there and tell them to stop doing this. So this is a much potentially a much bigger problem than what's going on with Russia or what's going on with Korea. You just don't hear about as much of the news. The other thing is, is and we've talked about this on the show before, has anybody out there ever – Heard of a Chinese oil spill? No. Well, that means one of two things. The Chinese are better than Shell and Exxon at getting off the ground, or they don't tell you when they make a spill. I think they just don't say anything. So when you think about uh, countries operating nationalized oil companies in parts of the world and damaging the environment, you would prefer a company like Shell or Chevron or Exxon or BP that will tell when they make a mistake and clean it up, as opposed to companies that don't tell, which then makes me think they probably don't spend much time cleaning it up either. So just from an environmental point of view, you really don't want China you know, looking for hydrocarbons there. Now, from the Chinese point of view, if nobody says you can't do this and you build an island, now you own this, well, now it's mine. So this is potentially a much bigger mess. We'll see how I, our current administration, the Japanese administration, and the European administrations handle this. Cool. Up next, question from Dustin. He writes, first of all, thank you for the informative and enjoyable podcast. What do you think the next— Wait, 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 wait. We missed a, had a second question from Tom. I just saw that. See, also, I'm actively seeking employment opportunities as a geologist upon my graduation in May. So if you have any input, shout outs on that, it'd be greatly appreciated. So Tom, wait until we get to this couple more questions and we'll answer his question, which goes along with the second part of your question. I'm sorry, Jake, go ahead. Okay. So what do you think the next year holds for the scoop? Continental and Gulfport are both down there, uh, but I haven't seen production data from very many wells. A couple of years ago, it seemed like the scoop and stack plays were up and coming darlings of the U.S. land. Density looks to increase in the stack, but the scoop has been mostly quiet as far as I can tell. 
What is it with our industry and these weird acronyms? All right, let's try this. SCOOP, South Central Oklahoma Oil Province, S-C-O-P. Stack, Sooner Trend Anadarko, Sooner Trend Anadarko, <laughs> Sooner Trend Anadarko, there's Canadian and Kingfishers in there somehow. I just can't remember what it is. Maybe it's counties or something. Anyway, I, at least I got scoop right. All right, so here's two parts of the U.S. where they have a lot of hydrocarbons in the ground that they have some issues years ago with disposal water causing earthquakes. That's been disproven or it's been fixed, I should say. They have about the third biggest recoverable uh, hunk of natural gas in the country, but they're also home of, of Cushing Hub, which is which is what sets the price for WTI and and you know other things. So. There's hydrocarbons there. They were hot and heavy. People picked up assets. When I say assets, they picked up property, right? mineral rights. They've gotten really good results doing horizontal fracking out there. The other thing is that nobody talks about is there's little to no produced formation water. So that means that they don't have to deal with water disposal. So you put all that together and this area is hot. The problem is the price of crude and gas needs to go up just literally about $2 more and you'll see more production going there. Uh, we don't think that's going to happen until the beginning of 2019. So, you know, so Dustin, just keep your eye on this. We think that 2019, you can see a lot of activity out there. And you can see a lot of long horizontals. You can see a lot of slick water profits being used out there. Maybe even some nanotechnology out there, some raisin coated profits, you know, stuff that's, that's new. So the activity is coming. The price aren't, isn't there yet to get it out the ground. But as soon as we get about two more dollars per barrel, you'll see a lot of activity picking up out there. All right. Up next, we have a question from a chemical engineer who's anonymous. He writes, hey, guys, love the show. Uh, Makes sitting in rush hour much more enjoyable. I'm a chemical engineer working for an independent refinery. I'm concerned with how the public perception of the energy industry may affect the long-term viability of refining in the United States. Recent examples include Valero barred from buying California terminals for 10 years, Tesoro denied Vancouver Energy Terminal, Washington State denying Shell Crude by Rail Project, significant opposition to Phillips 66 Rodeo Refinery Marine Terminal Proposal, more crude by ship. It seems a lot of opposition to anything oil stems from an overly simplistic view that all things oil and gas are bad and should be opposed. I don't agree with that. I used to be part of the problem. When I was a freshman in college, I told a friend that I would never work for an oil company as it would be immoral. I thought this way until we visited a refinery as part of a class trip and realized how ignorant I was. How can we, as an industry and individuals, help steal the conversation, restore the image of the industry, so the public at large better understands how much of a net benefit oil and gas is to society. Furthermore, what should our industry be focused on to enhance our environmental performance and display our stewardship for the environment? Finally, there seems to be pressure on large investment funds to divest from oil and gas. Is there any information that an independent refiner or upstream company should be providing to the investment community so they better understand environmental performance? Should there be a standard environmental metric like we have for personal and process safety? i.e. like OSHA, uh, recordable incident rate, API tier one and a half, I guess. Thanks. And we got a smiley face in there too. Okay. So uh, engineer, which is, he didn't want to say his name. A couple of things. One, if you get a chance, reach out to me. One of our requests at podcast is actually oil and gas refining and petrochemicals. I'd like to just talk to you, see if maybe you have an interest in working with us on that. To get to your questions, so let me tell you what's going on, is you have parts of our country, geographic parts of our country, that think about oil and gas differently politically. And I hate picking on California, but I'm going to do it because it makes me happy. So you talked about the Valero 
barred from buying the California terminal. Uh, you talk about Phillips 66. That one's also in San Francisco and California. California, even though they have a huge dependence on hydrocarbons, think they don't like oil and gas. That's why y'all pay so much money for fuel over there. That's why you pay so much money to heat your homes. And that, that trend's going to continue. That anti-oil and gas culture that is in parts of the West Coast, parts of the East Coast, is now to the point that it's so bad that it's driving companies to make different decisions. So you're seeing companies build their facilities in the Gulf Coast because it's very friendly to oil and gas refining petrochemicals. But look at things like what's going on in Ohio with the, the, sh- the uh, ethylene crackers. I mean, an ethylene cracker converts natural gas to plastic. You're not getting public pushback. I mean, you're getting a little bit, but that part of the country knows that they need the jobs and that they could actually, and I think in, in 50 years, that part of the U.S. is going to be like the Detroit for plastics. I think there's going to be so many ethylene crackers and petrochemical plants there. It's going to be a renaissance as far as you know jobs and, and wealth and prosperity for everybody. So you have parts of the country that are going to miss out on the benefits, and you're seeing that going literally right now on the East Coast and in California. There's I can't remember what state it is. I want to say it's is it Maryland. There's one of the states on the East Coast that. Refuse to let people build gas pipelines from Ohio, which is really right down the street, to provide their natural gas. So, Jake, now they're importing natural gas from the Caribbean, LNG. <laughs> and, and so their citizens are paying four times more than if they just would have built a pipeline. And they're supporting Caribbean companies, not U.S. companies. I mean, it's just that's where we've gotten to in this country, where that sort of stuff they think makes common sense. So I don't think – well, I know for a fact. So especially petrochemicals, that that is huge, will continue to grow. Every single person out there that says they don't like oil and gas, if you look at their feet, they're wearing petrochemicals on their feet, right? If you look at what their phone's made of, it's from petrochemicals. So regardless of what they say, they vote with their their wallet. And their wallet says, we love hydrocarbons. We love petrochemicals, right? Everything from the paint on the bicycle to the glue that holds a Tesla together to the insulation of the wires, all of that comes. So I wouldn't be worried about that. The thing I'd be worried about is living in a part of the country that politically dampens job creation that politically dampens business growth from excess taxation that doesn't have the money to build the infrastructure that it takes to run a modern city. And so we're starting to see that in some of the, the big cities in, in California where the companies, the major, you know, fortune 1000 companies that are headquartered there are moving. And, and unfortunately for California and very fortunately for Texas, a lot of them moving here to Texas because we have cheap taxes. We have amazing infrastructure because we have the money. We'll help finance your buildings because we have extra money sitting on the side because we love hydrocarbons. So I wouldn't be real worried about any of this. Now, as far as your last question, the investment funds, there's there's what you hear in the news and what's the reality going on. So investment fund managers, and I know a handful of them, they're, they're good people, but honestly, they could care less what it takes as long as they're making money for their fund. That, that's bottom line. And oil and gas, depending on what part and what that mix is, is very forecastable. So investment fund managers like oil and gas companies. doesn't mean they like your company. depends what's going on today in the world, right? So if you're an upstream company, especially if you're a mid-sized operator, last couple of years, you've been taken on the nose. The, the investment community wasn't real happy with you. 10 years ago, they were all over you, right? They're throwing money at you as fast as they could. But investment funds like oil and gas companies because the, the revenue is, pre, is easier to forecast than other segments. You're seeing some schools and some investment funds that quite frankly, has so much money they don't need to do, take a political stance and saying they divest themselves from fossil fuels. And that's fine. They won't last for long. You know, once this school starts having lower returns on its pension funds in this other school, well, guess what's going to happen? It's going to fix itself. And it's all a public perception thing. So I wouldn't, wouldn't really worry about that. I do like the idea, the standard environmental metric, that's a very good idea. I Quite honestly, I'm not sure that people and companies 
that don't like our industry would give that any weight. I think if we came up with a standard way to rank that, because, you know, in Europe and in North America, the oil and gas companies are some of the most environmentally companies on the planet, bar none. I mean, you can measure it. I'm not sure if I had those metrics and I brought it to somebody that didn't like our industry, if they'd pay any attention to it. I, I, I kind of think they just blow it off, you know? So, but, but yeah, don't be worried about this. Hydrocarbons are here forever. There is no fuel on the planet that has enough energy density to get a rocket out of our gravitational pull, right? So SpaceX runs kerosene, which comes from oil and gas. So, so I, I wouldn't worry about that at all. It's the politics may change. Public perception may change, which may, may change the geographic prosperity in the U.S., but that also is a U.S. European thing. You go to Africa, they don't care. They're happy to have a job by Chevron. They're so happy to have a job by Chevron. They love Chevron, right? You don't get this sort of stuff in the rest of the world. So no worries. Just give it some time. It'll, it'll fix itself. Cool. Last question is from John Maker. He writes, so I really love the podcast. Thanks for the show and all the others uh, under OJGN. Two questions. Are you bringing back the oil and gas career show? If so, when? Okay, let's stop there. Let's stop there. So we're actually in talks to bring that show back. It's going to be differently, different than the old one. The old one, we talked about current jobs that are going on. The new oil and gas career shows is to be more about how to manage your career in oil and gas, like how to get started, how to interview, how to dress, you know, how to get advancement, how to get, you know, expat assignments, all that sort of stuff. So I'm actually talking to a company for sponsorship. If you're a company out there that would benefit around this, so if you're a recruiting company, a um, succession planning company, an HR management software company, and you'd like to think about sponsoring a show, reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you because the more sponsors we have, the better. But yes, we're bringing it back and it probably won't, it'll probably happen this year toward the end of the year. All right, to the next question. Do you have any tips or techniques for interviewing in oil and gas, specifically the service companies? Okay. So a couple of things. You'd be amazed at how many companies and people will fill out a job interview and have no idea what the company does. People, do your research. Learn what the company does. Learn what they're going through. Read at least the 10K. And then for the job that you're applying for, figure out two separate things. I need you to be able to articulate why you want the job and why you would be good at the job. Two totally separate things. And during the, the interview, you need to bring both of those things up. Do some research. Look up a typical interview questions so you can be prepared so stuff won't catch you off guard. And then more importantly, I need to make sure you have more questions for the interviewer than the interviewer has for you. You want to do as much interviewing in that initial interview as they do. You want to make sure it's a good fit. One of the things I tell people all the time is, is if you, after the interview, if you think it's a good fit, ask the interviewer, hey, if we go to the next step, I'd like to take one of my peers out for lunch just to pick their brain about what they think about working here. That shows, number one, that you're committed to making sure it's a good fit. But number two, you understand that culture is different in different companies, and you have to have as good a cultural fit as you have to do a job skill fit. And then you'll hear a lot of people tell you to practice. You know, Jake, in my experience, that's never real. So if you practice like you're interviewing with me, you know that it's me. It's not, it's not like really practice, right? So I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't, I would, I would take that out of their practice. The, the final thing I'll leave you with though, is when you walk out of that room, one of the last things you say or ask for is, look, whether this is a good fit or not, can you commit to let me know one way or the other? And then pick a date, you know, next Wednesday, this way you're not hanging on a branch. They've made a commitment to you. And quite honestly, if they don't keep that commitment to you, you probably don't want to work there. So there's, there's my you know, tips around interviewing for oil and gas service companies. I think I thought I was going to have something to add to that, honestly, but I think you pretty much covered everything, Mark. I think all those are great tips, and that's exactly what I would suggest. Yeah. So, yeah, and it's just, just be yourself. It's the point now where people that interview often can pick out the bullshit, quite frankly. Just relax and be yourself. If you're awkward, if you're nervous, it's okay. Hey, say I'm nervous. I haven't interviewed very often. They get it. They've been there as well, too. But good question, John. Thanks for reaching out. And yes, we're working on that, that careers podcast. It's on the list. 
Oh, that's some good questions. Some different questions, but some good questions. Speaking of good questions, if you'd like to write a whole bunch of questions and need a place to keep them until you send them in, you should go out and try to win one of these Red Wing offshore bags. It would hold thousands and thousands of questions, right? No purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast, put your information in, and we give away one lucky winner a week. Uh, rig count, Jake, what are we up to? 1,088 rigs. Wow, that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> And then events on deck, um, by the time you hear this, it may be too late, but Patrick and I will be out at, in the Permian, a LinkedIn local, April 19th. We've got OTC coming out uh, April 3rd to May, th- I mean, April 3rd to May 3rd. I gave away a bunch of OTC passes in my last newsletter. If you missed it, you've missed it for good. You got to wait till next year. If you want to make sure you don't miss that and other stuff, go sign up for it. Jacob put a link in the, in the show notes, one click, and you can sign up and we send all these oil and gas events out once a month. We don't charge you anything for them. And then Jake, we got a happy hour coming up, don't we? Another one? Yes, we do. Our last one was so successful that we were doing another one on April 25th from 6 to 9 p.m. Beer will be provided, probably some food. Last time, we, we, got, a, we got a keg of Shiner and we got a keg of Bud Light. And then WeWork had, you know, they had their little pony kegs with, with some craft brew. Turns out everybody likes darker slash craft brew. And like nobody really touched the Bud Light. So we're going to make sure that uh, we accommodate uh, accordingly moving forward. But we had over 200 RSVPs at the last event. I think about 150 people showed up. You know, the entire floor there at WeWork was jam-packed. We're going to post some photos that we took and some video from the last uh, event as well. But I will put the RSVP in the show notes for you guys to come out. And we'd love to, love to meet you and, and have a good time. Yeah, and Jake, a couple of things I thought were noteworthy. Number one, the wine disappeared. Yeah. That's true. Right. The wine went, went quickly. The other thing is everybody I talked to said this is one of the best oil and gas networking events they've been to ever, ever, anywhere in the world was this one. So it's limited space. Come shine up. Speaking of this sort of stuff, if you're a company and you'd like to get in front of all these people working oil and gas very easily, very inexpensively, I think it's less than $450, reach out to Julie. Jacob put her link to her email in the show notes and say you want to sponsor the happy hour. We're looking for drink sponsors. It's not much money. You get your logo plastered everywhere. You get a big shout out. We may even get you on a podcast or two. So reach out to Julie if you have an interest in doing that. And then Jake and I have a bunch of stuff we're, we're doing this year, a bunch of events. The entire Only Gas Global Network has a bunch of events. If you'd like to spend your marketing dollars in a way that gives you better results than, than pitching a booth somewhere, reach out to me. I'd be happy to share those details with you. And then when you go to OnlyGasThisWeek.com, give us your email address. We promise not to spam you, and that's where we're letting people find out about stuff first. We're working on that. I know I didn't do it last time. We're working on it. And then if you want to find out about stuff second, go to the Oil Gas Global Network LinkedIn group, and we're doing a little bit better job over there. You know, now that we've picked Julie up, Jake, I think a lot of this back office stuff is good, just streamlined, because she's a machine. She's she's crazy. She's a Terminator. <laughs> she gets stuff done. So yeah, everybody, you can see a lot of stuff going on. Don't think that's me and Jake. That's, that's Julie getting stuff done behind the scenes. This is a good uh, first Friday Q&A. If you want to ask your questions, let us know. Go to the website. Click on Ask a Question. If we read your question on the air, we'll give you a big shout-out. Ready to get out of here, Jake? Let's do it. All right, folks. Remember, do great work. Pay it forward. And we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.